Oncology Data Advisor. Today, Lily Shockney, Professor of Surgery at Johns Hopkins University, will be discussing symptom management and quality of life preservation for patients with breast cancer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So what is the prognosis of stage four breast cancer? So stage four breast cancer, also known as metastatic breast cancer, means that the breast cancer has gone beyond the breast and beyond the lymph nodes and beyond the bloodstream and has set up tumors in other organs within that woman's body. For invasive ductal carcinoma, commonly that is the bone, uh, liver, lung, also sometimes the brain. For invasive lobular, it'll go to the bone and um, sometimes goes uh, to the liver, sometimes to the lung, but it will also go to the stomach lining, to the intestines, to the uterus, to the ovaries. So it has different pathways to take it to different places. Uh, when I look back 50 years ago, it would be rare to remember a woman living more than one to two years after being diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. Today, however, with the improvements in science and drug therapies and better understanding of the biology of the tumors, which is where that wonderful breast pathologist comes in to be able to explain those things to us so we can develop better treatments and such. For women that have estrogen receptor positive breast cancer and uh, HER2 negative breast cancer, so ER positive, HER2 negative, we're able to give them uh, relatively new drugs, such as CDK4-6 inhibitors, along with hormonal therapies. And these women are literally living a decade. I know several that have been living for more than two decades. They are living in harmony with this disease and we are able to treat it as a chronic illness like we would diabetes or heart disease or COPD. For those women that have triple negative breast cancer, it's estrogen receptor negative, not stimulated to grow by estrogen, progesterone negative, not stimulated to grow by progesterone hormones either, and HER2 negative as well. We have fewer drugs to offer. We're defaulting to needing to give chemotherapy. So she loses the opportunity to get drugs that, um, that are focused specifically on ER positive HER2 negative disease. These women are living one to three years, sometimes as far out as five years, but their cancers are usually more aggressive. So one thing to recognize is that metastatic breast cancers are not all the same. Where they go is not all the same, but it is where they go that then becomes the cause of death. If we could prevent breast cancer from ever leaving the breast, no one would ever die. It's when you get it in your liver, you get it in your lungs, those organs can't function right anymore, that um, you're, and you will end up with an infection and the infection will be your cause of death. But I'm pleased to say that today more and more research is being done in the metastatic space than has ever been done before. Individuals with stage four breast cancer for decades have felt they've been forgotten and that pharmaceutical companies have only been focusing on new treatments for early stage breast cancer patients. And there is a ton of money that has been devoted to metastatic 
breast cancer with the goal of not having anyone die, which means preventing the disease from spreading further, reversing it where it is. I have a, a, a very dear friend of mine who uh, developed her metastatic breast cancer 19 years after her original early diagnoses. That is very unusual to see it take 19 years before it declares itself in her lungs and her bones, but it did. She now is almost 10 years living in harmony with this disease on CDK4-6 inhibitors and hormonal therapy. For the last three years, her scans have shown NED, which stands for no evidence of disease. Now we know there's gotta be microscopic disease there somewhere, which is why we still have our own therapy. So we don't consider her cured, but we can't see any active disease. So she is NED. So I tell her, are you still living with Ned? Are you sleeping with Ned? Are you enjoying Ned? Please tell me yes. Is Ned your best friend? Because he's got to be. And she'll say, yes, my scan showed that Ned and I are still living together. And that's fabulous. I mean, how fabulous can that be? Um, but it also means that uh, these individuals that are living years out with their disease also usually look normal. So if someone walks up to them and said, I heard you had stage four breast cancer, but that must have been a lie because you look fine. And she says, well, no, actually I do have stage four breast cancer. Well, you don't look like it. People don't believe that they have stage four breast cancer unless they are really sick looking. And that's, that's a crime. So they live in a world of isolation and they're very frustrated about that. And we need to do something about that. We need to teach consumers, what does a breast cancer patient look like today who's got stage four disease? They all aren't in a wheelchair and bald and bent over. That uh, she might be paying, playing uh, tennis later today. So what are the types of palliative care for these patients? So let me first say that palliative care gets a bad rap because it is assumed the palliative care is part of hospice care and only part of hospice care, which it is not. Palliative care is intended to stand alone as well as be part of hospice care at end of life. And because there is confusion about what palliative care is, I don't call it palliative care. I prefer to call it what it is. It is quality of life preservation or quality of life restoration. That's what a palliative care doctor specializes in. Restore my quality of life or prevent me from losing my quality of life. And they do it their very best without using opioids for pain relief. Medical oncologists are taught to use opioids for pain relief. Palliative care doctors say, I'm going to give her a nerve block. I'm going to do a vertebroplasty. I'm, uh, and you're nauseated. Uh, rather than tell you to only eat soft food, I'm going to give you a pill that will stimulate your appetite. 
um, that we use for anorexia nervosa. And it works for advanced cancer patients very well in keeping their appetite stimulated and not having nausea. So they think out of the box, and I always say they think out of the bra for our breast cancer patients and say, let's talk about what your symptoms are and the side effects of your treatment also are and what we can do together to minimize them or even make them go away. And uh, I am in awe of what these specialists are able to do. They usually aren't called in though until much later when we're in a discussion about hospice, when it should have been, a palliative care specialist should have been added to the patient's team as soon as they were diagnosed with stage four disease, even if they don't have any aches, pains or nothing. That patient should be meeting who is their quality of life coach that's going to be on their multidisciplinary team and involved with taking care of them whenever she needs them. That's what should be happening. And our palliative care specialists at Johns Hopkins, who I do refer to as our quality of life coaches, because that's what they are, they have trained all of us to ask specific questions when we meet a patient with stage four disease. Um, at that very first consultation. These questions are on the back of our ID badges, though I hope and pray no one has to look at their badges anymore because we've been using this now for 14 years. The first question is how much do you know about your, in our case, breast cancer? And the patient might say, oh, I know everything. Well, just tell me what you know. And that's where we find out that, they've, that they, what they thought they knew is incorrect. Patient may say, well, I know I have breast cancer and bone cancer and lung cancer and liver cancer. And we say, no, you only have breast cancer, but the breast cancer cells have spread to those other organs. You don't have primary lung cancer and primary liver cancer and primary bone cancer. And sadly, she and her family will already have been on the internet looking up all of those. What's the treatment for lung cancer? What's the treatment for bone cancer? which is all a waste of time. So we gotta make sure she's got the facts, accurate information about the kind of disease she has. Then we ask, second question is, how much do you want to know about your breast cancer? Not every patient wants to know everything. Sometimes they want what I call just-in-time information. I can only deal right now with you telling me where my cancer is and the first drugs you're gonna use to help shrink it. I, I can't deal with hearing about radiation or anything else. Just tell me that part for now. So I call just-in-time information. Then these next questions we ask at every, at that first visit and every sequential visit, what are you hoping for right now? What are you most worried about right now? And tell me three things that bring you joy or brought you joy before you became sicker. Those joys is part of how she defines her quality of life. I love playing with my two-year-old grandson. I love bird watching. I love hearing my church choir sing. And we need to preserve those things for her. And we can, but we can only do it if we know about them. How can we protect, keep a bubble around those things? She may have a, a daughter getting married in three weeks. We need to know that 
So her nurse navigator is digging in with her on that of, tell me what milestones are coming up in the next few months. Do you have a wedding anniversary, a 50th birthday? And he just said, well, my daughter's getting married in three weeks. Then we're going to begin your treatments after the wedding. No, no, no. I want to start treatment right away. I've, I've got disease in these other organs. You have a wedding coming up. And it's not going to change your outcome by waiting four weeks. It will not change it. If we waited 10 weeks, that'd be different, but not four weeks. We know that from clinical research. We want you to enjoy your daughter's wedding. We don't want you without your hair on your head. We don't want you looking sick. We don't want you trying to get yourself into the bathroom to throw up. That's not the memory you want to have of your daughter's wedding. That's not the memory your daughter wants to have of you at her wedding. So we need to preserve those milestones. And the only way we can do it is by knowing it and making sure the multidisciplinary team factors it into their treatment planning. And if they don't, shame on us because we should have asked our patient these things. Even if the patient says, those don't matter anymore. They mattered before she knew she had breast cancer, so they still matter. They're still just as important to her and probably also to her family. So we, we, need to, we need to work on those to hold on to those. And um, we also know that over time, what her joys are will change. What she's hoping for will change. What she's most worried about will change. And we need to have very candid, thoughtful conversations with her each time we ask these questions so we can help her with, with these things. I believe that we need to help a patient through phases of hope. The first phase is I'm hoping for a miracle and we can all hop on that wagon for about a month to six weeks. And now next we're gonna hope for normal longevity and her living in harmony with this disease and her dying of something other than her breast cancer. Then after she's been on therapies for some time, maybe she's on fifth line therapy, sixth line therapy, golly, seventh line therapy, where the treatments are working for a much shorter period of time or not working at all. And they're making her sicker each time we give her a new treatment. Now we've got to have a sit down conversation and say, you're not going to have the longevity we had hoped for. You're going to have a shorter longevity, but we want to preserve your quality of life during this shorter length of time that you're going to have. And your life goals that are beyond where we think you will survive, we're going to help you fulfill them in alternative ways. So I'm going to go back to a wedding. Right now, a patient may have a 10-year-old daughter. And the way things are looking, it looks like she's her mother, this patient, is probably only going to survive another year at best. So I'm going to provide to her cards, greeting cards, that I get donated for every milestone that a child and young adult reaches, for birthdays, for bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, First communion, confirmation, uh, getting their driver's license, when they graduate from high school, when they graduate from college, uh, when they get their first job that's tied to their career 
aspirations. Uh, when they get married, when they have their first baby, what do you want to tell your child on that day? And she writes in these. These aren't texts or emails or typing a note. This is her handwriting with her blue pen that her child's going to see. And she's going to write in it her motherly advice, what she hopes for her in her marriage. She's also going to let her know that she is with her in spirit that day. And other smart things to tell her. I had a, a young woman contact me who I'd never met, who told me, she said, I only knew your first name. Uh, I've never met you. You took care of my mother 14 years ago when I was 10. And that's when my mother died was when I was 10. And my mother was in and out of the hospital a lot during the last six months of her life. And each time my dad would bring her home, my aunt Sarah, my mother's sister, would come over to help my dad take care of her. And I would listen to my mother telling my aunt Sarah, Lily said to do this and Lily said to do that, but I didn't know who Lily was or what you were telling my mom until my mother passed away and my aunt Sarah became the keeper of my cards. And every milestone in my life, there's been a card from my mother. And I've kept every single card and I've done whatever she told me to do in every single card. She said, three weeks ago, I got married. And as my Aunt Sarah helped me with my veil, she handed me a card from my mother. And she said the edging of the envelope had yellowed because after all, it was 14 years old. She said, I opened it up, removed the card. It was a beautiful card. She said, I looked inside and down the left-hand side was where my mother had written at the top I know you would have chosen wisely who was deserving to have you spend the rest of your life with. In the middle, she wrote marital advice. Don't ever go to bed angry with one another. Whatever it is could be talked through. And at the bottom, she wrote, when your dad lifts your veil and kisses your left cheek, you will feel me kiss your right. And she said, Miss Lily, I had to track you down. I didn't know if you were still at Johns Hopkins in the Breast Center or not, but thank God you are. So I can tell you, I swear to you, I felt my mother's kiss. I have always felt my mother's presence through these cards. Now, I asked my Aunt Sarah if there's any more cards, and she didn't answer me. So is this my last card? And I said, are you planning to have a family? She said, yes, we want to start a family in about a year and a half. I said, when you learn you are expecting, there is a letter from your mother that she has written that describes how she felt when she found out she was carrying you. When the baby is born, there's a letter from your mother describing how she felt the first time she held you and all of her hopes for you in your life. And when the baby is a toddler, there is a recordable book of nursery rhymes and children's stories that are recited in your mother's voice. So your children will know their grandmom's voice. And she was thrilled to hear that. I said, you will never be without your mother in your life. And I'll tell you, I think that these women who have been forced to die might be doing a better job rearing their children than we are who are here. 
because maybe we don't write out all of that in a birthday. Maybe we just write love mom. Maybe we think we're going to say these things on the day she gets married, but the day gets away from us because it's a busy day. And then saying it later doesn't feel the same, so it never gets said. What gets written in these is taken to heart and carried out always. So it's an alternative way to fulfill those hopes rather than having to say, I'm so sorry you won't be here one day when your daughter gets married. I'll say, let's let's use an alternative way and I've done it for several decades and I know it works. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to check back throughout Breast Cancer Awareness Month for more of this exclusive interview series, all found at oncdata.com.